You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, appreciate you guys joining the show every week. We also appreciate all the reviews and ratings that you guys have left on iTunes and all the other sites where we are, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, even on Spotify. Those reviews help get the word out about the podcast. We're trying to grow this thing as big as possible. The podcast has been doing great over the course of the first year, and we only hope to do bigger things, but we can't do that without you guys. So leaving those ratings and reviews help us out a lot. It gets the word out there about the podcast. Also, we hope to take this podcast into a video format coming up this year where you guys can interact with us while we're interviewing the guests and get your questions in. So all of these things are on the horizon for the Hazard Ground, and we can't do without you. So please keep up the support of the Hazard Ground. And as always, you can send us emails and let us know what you like and what you don't like about the show. This week's guest, an amazingly incredible story. He was a Marine Corps corporal. He was also a dog handler uh, and deployed to Afghanistan where he was injured. And after his military career was over, get this, he became an underwear model and a soap opera actor. Amazing story. He is Chris Van Etten, and he joins us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Chris, thanks for being here. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, as I said, uh, not many underwear models that I talk to, but beyond that, this is an incredible story that you have. It's just, it's unreal to see what you've accomplished in your post-military career. So with that, tell us how your military career got started. Well, my military career got started because basically I lived in a family of, you know, military people. Both of my parents were Air Force, um, so I grew up around that type of scenario. Uh, my grandpa was in the Army. Uh, or my grandpa was in the Navy. Great-grandpa was in the Army. So kind of like the family business, if you will. All right. So what made you join? Was it just, I mean, did you ever have any, any ideas of not joining? Did you want to do something else? I think for a brief, for a brief moment there, I thought I was going to try to go to culinary school. But when I really sat down and thought about it, I, I knew I had to serve. I knew whether it was going to be for four years or 24 years or however long that I just needed to give back to my country. You know, when you enlisted, though, it was, we were already, you know, deep into two wars. Did any of that deter you at all, or was that more of a motivation to join? No, it didn't deter me at all. Um, it, it was a little bit of a motivation, but whether we were peacetime or at wartime, I just wanted to serve, uh, be able to do something that I was proud of. And people actually asked me, you know, with both my parents being Air Force, why I chose to be a Marine. And if you ask my mom, it's because I needed to pick something that was more stubborn than I was. <laughs> I was actually going to be my next question because you had the two Air Force parents. Well, what else about the Marines drew you to them? I mean, honestly, I, I guess I was one of those, those kids that saw those commercial flame dragons climbing mountains and everything like that. And, and not only that, but uh, the camaraderie, that brotherhood, that I had heard so much about, especially in the Marine Corps and in the infantry, um, just something about being that tight-knit with people to where you can trust them with your life and to go out there and do this, this badass stuff. Just, I don't know. It was, how can you not want to do that? Right. Now, what was the kind of details of it? Was it right out of high school or? Yeah, I, I joined right out of high school. Um, and yeah, I mean, my, my goal was, again, depending on how long I was going to be in, 
you know, I was going to do my time and either make a career out of it or get out and do something else. So you do your Marine indoctrination. Was it all you had thought it would be? It was obviously different than what I had thought it was going to be, as I'm sure it is for everyone. You don't go into something like that expecting, you know, it to be everything you thought it was. Um, but there wasn't a time, I don't think, that where I ever sat back and thought it was a mistake. All right. So when you reflect back on the experience now, what about Marine boot camp made your service time easier, if at all? Uh, well, what made it, what made it actually easy for me was the fact that my dad, you know, you, you can say whatever you want. People always make fun of, you know, the Air Force people, but my dad was a very strict individual and I love him to death, but he, when I was growing up, he was very strict. Um, and we always make the joke that when I got to boot camp, you know, the DIs are yelling at you and I'm like, oh, this is no different than how my dad would yell at me if I was, you know, if I was messing up. Um, and so I actually kind of was able to, to utilize that, that whether it was fear or, or whatever to, to push me to keep going and that discipline of even when I don't want to do something, I'm going to do it. I think that was ultimately what helped further my career in everything now. When you look back on the whole experience, you know, what do you take away from boot camp the most? The thing I took away from boot camp the most, um, it probably, yeah, probably that drive, that, that discipline. Uh, that was the first real time, being completely honest, the first real time in my life where I had been challenged to that extent. And, you know, growing up, I wasn't anything special. I wasn't, you know, the star quarterback on the football team. I was, I was a skater kid who had a child. I was a regular guy. And so, to sh you know, I've proved to myself, you know, in boot camp that I could do all of these badass things that, that Marines do. What was the time frame of this whole thing, Chris? I mean, wh what year was it? This was back in 2009. Uh, this was, uh, I, I went to boot camp in, I'm trying to think now, August. Um, so, yeah, those, those three months. What is your first duty station? Where where are you headed? Where, what do they tell you when you get there? How quickly do you hear about you're going to deploy? To give us all the ins and outs. So my first duty station uh, was at 29 Palms. I was stationed with 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, uh, Charlie Company, or Suicide Charlie for anyone who knows. Um, and I think I was more terrified to me and my seniors from all the stories that I heard in boot camp and ITB. Um, then I went to meet my DIs, and yeah, I mean, you know, it 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 wasn't nearly as dramatic as some people made it seem. But you know, I was a boot, and I got treated like a boot for a while. Um, but you know, I I took everything in. I I learned what I had to do, uh, and when we deployed in. I want to say G July of 2010. It was a it was a mu. It was on the 31st mu, uh, so not a combat deployment. Um, I wanted my goal was by the time that deployment was over, I wanted to be in, in uh, either a fire leader, uh, the, the uh, 
team leader or the squad leader position um, because I, I just wanted to, to leave Marines. All right, so that first deployment was was an, as a non-combat one. Uh, when do you get to your next deployment, and is that a combat one? Yeah, so the next one that I went to that was uh, that was in well, I left February, late February of two thousand twelve, um, and that I was I was a dog handler, uh, and so we went there a little bit earlier than the rest of the, the rest of our unit to kind of get the dogs acclimated and and all of that stuff. Um, but we were there up until I got injured that, that June. Now, how, how did the dog handler position come out? Like how, how did, is that something you wanted to do or you were chosen for it? Cause it's not exactly a common job. No, it's not a common job. And it was, I'm glad I got, I got picked for it. Cause I was, um, I was slated to go to a uh, squad leaders course, uh, but of course, I, I made the mistake of not completing all my NCIs. Um, but I still wanted to do something, and so I asked, and they're like, "Well, we need people for dog handlers." And uh, I mean, I I've had dogs my entire life, so I offered to do that. Now, and that was just a, a by chance, by luck thing. I mean, it was they were just looking for people, and you happened to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah, they were looking for people. They were looking for people to go. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a glorified job. It's but it's it was a fun job. And looking back, I'm glad I actually got to keep uh, my dog. Her name is Harley. Uh, and after I got injured, they they were able to retire her, and now she's my service dog and slash pet slash best friend. Yeah, well, don't don't spill all the beans yet. So we'll we'll get to Harley because it's. A, <laughs> It's a big part of you know your story and, and one of the you know kind of kind of nice anecdotes. I don't want to spoil too much for for our listeners, but okay. So y- you end up. Do you have to go to school to be a, a dog trainer? How much time did that take? Yeah. So yeah, you have to go to school for it's, it's only like a month and a half, and it's really just so that you can train with the dog on how it should react and listen to your commands, not just commands from anyone. Um, and so it, it, it's a school, but it's also a time to bond with the dog um, and get to understand how it works and for it to get, understand how you work. And just want to make sure and clarify for everybody who's listening, these are all bomb-sniffing dogs, correct? I mean, that's all, what their main purpose was? Yeah. So we used labs, and I know a lot of other people, they expect, you know, the German Shepherds um, and the Malwas, but the reason why we used labs was because they aren't as aggressive and the last thing you want while you're on a patrol through a village is for the dog to get aggressive on someone. Right. And so we use labs because, you know, their noses are, anybody who's ever had a lab knows that their noses are the best. They can smell anything and everything. And they're just, they're just fun dogs and they're hardworking dogs. Um, the one thing that, you know, I tell people too, though, is you know, these dogs don't understand what they're doing. You know, it's like trying to, uh, explain it to a child. They work in this, if I do this, then this. They don't realize, hey, I'm potentially, you know, I'm sniffing bombs so that people don't get blown up. Their their thing is, hey, if I smell this smell and do this thing that I was taught to do, then I'll get rewarded for it. Um, and so keeping that in mind, um, it, it, it was a little hard at first, but, you know, since I've been with dogs my whole life, it was it was kind of easy to 
to get into that rhythm. And the reward is simply a Scooby snack, correct? The, actually, the reward is uh, anybody that do the little red Kongs, they look like a little red yep. snowman. Yeah, that yeah. Was, that's all they want. Really? Because and you don't want you don't want to treat them, reward them with food, because then the only time they'd be able to eat is if they did something good. So you have to find something that they're not physically dependent on that they would still be driven enough to work for. And so these cons were their reward for doing the job. That's interesting because I would have settled for a Scooby snack. I mean, I always think of my stomach, so that's just me. It would have been, would have been a nice little comfort to have a oh, hamburger or something. <laughs> okay, yeah. so oh yeah, me too. <laughs> you get in country. Um, you're in Afghanistan. Uh, what is the mission of the unit that you're working with and supporting? And kind of give us the details of, of the entire uh, you know surroundings of where you are and exactly what you have to do. Yeah. Okay. So we were in singing. And we basically our job was to, I, I mean, what everybody down in that area were, was doing. Um, we were stationed around Fob Nole uh, and the PB surrounding that area. Um, and basically it was counter, counterterrorism and to help out the local populace. And, you know, I, my first, very first patrol, I remember we were just, we were out, um, and that first round hit, and I, that was the, the time that I realized that we were, we were in the shit. Uh, you know, one day we would be out. We, we were doing a lot of night ops at the time, too, and so we'd be out at night trying to find guys placing IEDs, and then during the day we'd be helping whoever needed helping in the local villages. When that first round hit, as you said, and, and, you know, things are different. We talk about it all the time in the podcast that the phrase we always use is real gets real. And does that change your mindset? I mean, how did you react to it personally? And then uh, I guess the other question, how did the dog react to it? Oh, the, again, the dog, the dog didn't understand what was going on. Okay. You know, they, they heard the pop and they hardly got all excited. She thought, you know, and they do train them around gunfire, but again, the dogs don't know what gunfire is. They don't realize that that little piece of metal can kill them. So they're just like all excited about what's going on. But for me, um, I was just like, oh, you know, here we go. Like it's game time. But you know, that was that was the beginning of the deployment. Things were kind of slow, um, and so we'd get pop shots here and there. It wasn't until right around the time I got injured that things started picking up. Let me ask you, this just popped into my head. I mean, we're trained as soldiers, you trained as Marines, you take care of the person next to you. And, and when gunfire happens, my first thought was, where are my people? Where are my guys? You know, is everybody okay? The instinct to protect yourself over an animal is probably a lot easier than it is to protect yourself over your battle buddy. How much of that played into your mind when rounds are going off that you had to protect the dog or did that, are you told not to protect the dog and just take care of yourself and your other Marines? Like what, what's the thought process? So we're told, so anybody that works with the dogs um, could tell you that they actually have this thing where the dog is always ranked above you. Really? Yeah. It, it, that's one, so you don't beat the dog, but two, so you kind of see it as another member of your squad um, and to treat it just like any other member of your squad. I mean, if that dog gets injured, 
you know, get shot or get blown up doing its job, you have to call in a healer Kazavec, to get that dog out of there and get it treated. Um, well, no, see, hold on. I'm, let me let me cut you. Let me just ask because to me, like I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, if my buddy gets shot, I'm in a state of panic, and, and I don't mean to sound callous, but if the dog the dog is much more replaceable to, to the average person, I I, I don't want want mean to sound like I'm you know being callous and and, and but you get what I'm saying. Like I, I can't replace yeah. another marine as easy I can re- can replace a training dog. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you're right. I mean, at the end of the day. They, they also teach us that these dogs are tools and they are meant. And it's, it's hard because you do develop this deep bond dog. Uh, and to try to keep reminding yourself, you know, this is a tool that the Marine Corps has bought and trained to do a job. I think if it came down to a dog or one of my Marines, obviously the Marine would take top priority. But if I have a chance, to save that dog, I mean, I'm going to do everything I can to save that dog as well, um, as long as it doesn't endanger anybody else's life. It, it, were you ever in that situation where you had to do something to protect the dog? Well, like when we got shot, I would get the dog as close as I could to me, and I would have it sit right next to me and lay down and in cover, and I would, you know, I would try to guard it if we had to get up and move and do anything. That dog. Was right there by my side. Um, you, you do it again, obviously, without endangering your life or anybody else's. And for those listening, the part of the reason I ask is if you're not familiar, dogs in Arab countries are they're not loved the way they are in America. You know, the, the stray dogs, at least in my experience in Iraq, were shot. They were just killed because they were nothing but a nuisance. Now, to us in America, that yeah. seems foreign and crazy, but in Arab countries, they don't value a dog the way we do. So, I mean, it, to me, it almost seems easy that sometimes dogs would be more of a target than people would be. Yeah. Well, and at the same time, these, you know, the opposition, the Taliban and all of them, they know what these dogs are out there for. Um, and they know what they're capable of. And so there has been a few times where there was a couple shots at towards the dog. Um, and you have to, you have to, grab the dog and try to get it in there. I mean, luckily they're small animals, at least Harley was a small dog. So it was, it'd be a lot harder to shoot her than somebody else. But, um, yeah, they exactly what you said. They're not looked at. They're not revered like they are out here. All right. So let's bring it back. So you're starting to go on patrols. Um, when is the first, after the first time you come into contact, when is the first time something serious begins to happen? The first time I would say that something seriously began to happen was probably about a month and a half before I got injured. Um, we were doing raids on a couple compounds um, and, you know, just trying to clear out cash raids that we had heard about. And then about a week before I got injured, one of the convoys close to us was taking a lot of, taking a lot of heat, um, rolling over IEDs, getting stuck in ditches, getting, you know, ambush. And so we went out there to provide some covering fire. And uh, that was a, that was a pretty hairy day. Luckily nobody in our squad got injured, but um, yeah, it was a crazy day. Were, were the dogs able to sense when bad stuff was going on? Or I know you said that they don't really have a concept of gunfire, but animals have that instinct, that instinct that, you know, kind of just lets them know that bad things are going on. No. 
they have an understanding when bad things have happened. Uh, you know, like I said, when Harley, you know, when she heard those pops, she she didn't know that it was gunfire. But um, and we actually, you know, during those like those the security um, time, we didn't actually bring the dogs out all the time because there was you know there's a time for them and there's the time that they weren't needed. Like anytime we'd go out at night, we would take them because of how loud the commands are. You know, it's already hard enough to be stealthy with all that gear on. The last thing you want is for me blowing a whistle and yelling at Harley to go left or right um, when we're trying to set up an observation post. Before we get to your injury, uh, were there times that you had to go out and the dogs actually did what they were trained to do? They found bombs and things of that nature. How often did that happen during your deployment? Uh, Fairly, it was, it kind of depended. Um, like anything, it, the dogs operate under a certain set of conditions. The wind has to be right. And so if it's a windy day, it's usually, the dogs are usually pretty good about it. If it's a stale day, there's not really anything blowing the wind in the direction that it needs to be, then yeah, the dogs have a hard time finding it. Um, and yeah, and not only that, but just like people do, they get tired. And so after like 45 minutes of walking around, they need to take a break. Um, and just like everybody else, when they get tired, they don't work as hard. Um, and they have to be driven, you know, be motivated even more to do it. So it, it, there's so many factors that played into it. And I, I love the fact that the dogs are out there, but I think some people didn't see it that way. So just in kind of summation, as far as the, the, the work of the dog, I mean, could you have been as effective on this deployment without the dogs? Uh, no, I personally do not think so. I think that the dog, especially if there was, especially if there was even an inkling that there was an IED, you know, you can't, you can't have EOD, you know, at the time, the, the operating procedure for EOD was you had to have two sources of confirmation, visual and something else. And a lot of times, you know, if you, if you have the opportunity to not get close and con- you know, confirm it, then you're going to, and that's where the dogs really shown was, you know, Hey, there's something over there. It looks pretty hazy. Send the dog out there and then you can get the dogs. These dogs are smart. They know how to go left and right. They know how to go back and forward. Um, and you'll get that dog right on top of it. And I mean, I'll trust it. If the dog's smelling it and they're not, they're not confirming it, they're not laying down and pointing at it, then I would be pretty confident in saying that it's not an IED. Interesting. I, I'm actually more fascinated about this than I really thought until we started having this conversation. So uh, I appreciate your perspective. Uh, let's move forward to June 13th, 2012. Uh, that was the date of your injury. Take me through... The early part, I, I, I know it was a night mission you got injured on. Was this something that was going on overnight from the night before, or was it that you woke up the morning of the 13th of June and to kind of take me through that day? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, June 13th, well, June 12th, June 13th, it was it was an interesting day. And, yeah, we were doing a lot of controls at the time. Um, and I didn't, we didn't take, again, we didn't take the dogs out at night. Um, otherwise, maybe things would have been differently. But we normally, when we go out at night during the day, the day before or the day of, we like to try to do a, a day patrol and just kind of look for things that maybe 
we should be wary of. We're able to the night that we went out on the 13th. And so we, we kind of had an uneasy feeling. You know that feeling when, when you think something's wrong or when something doesn't feel right. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, anybody that's been out there knows what that feeling is of just something is off. Uh, and so we were going out there and it, it was, it was a kind of a weird night again. And I remember we were, we were setting up our LP in this place we had never really been before. And, and we're looking out there and it was just deathly quiet. I mean, there wasn't anybody out anywhere. We like to think we're stealthy, but I, I feel like most of the time they know where we are. Again, when you're carrying 70-something pounds on your back, you know, on your back or on your body, it's kind of hard to, to walk on these mountains quietly. Um, but, you know, we sat there for quite a few hours just looking out, trying to find anything. And we were we were actually getting everything ready to... We were packing everything up, getting it ready to go back to our fob when we heard the first IED go off. And as you know, when something like that happens, everybody's got a job. And so my job was, my team's job was to set up the LZ. And so we got that done pretty quick. We scanned it, um, found a good open space for it. And we were on standby providing security when I heard someone say, hey, you know, we need an extra buddy over here or an extra body. Uh, and so, you know, I was the closest one. So I, I, I headed up that way and they kind of filled me in on what happened uh, and, and the injuries. And when I got over there, you know, the corpsman was, was fixing up our guy. Um, what were the extent so, of the injuries at that time, like the first IED? So for him, his injuries, he had both of his legs. Um, they were both missing. Um, and I couldn't really see because it was that night. And so we had, we were trying to still kind of keep some sort of, of, of stealth. Well, not stealth, but, you know, we didn't want lights shining all over the place. Um, so we had some sort of light discipline still. Um, and at first I thought that it was just, you know, one of his, one of his legs. And then as we were laying everything out to get him ready to pull in, that's when I realized that both of his legs were actually missing. Um, but, you know, I didn't stand there and stare. You know, we, we had a job to do, and I wanted to get this guy, I wanted to get my buddy out of this kill zone and into a safe area. And so me and my buddy TJ, we were laying down our litter and trying to get it all flat and everything while the equipment finished up. And as soon as we laid it flat, I crossed over it. I stepped over it to kind of get on the other side so we could get ready to pull them up. And I remember as, as I stepped on the litter, that's when the second ID went off. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I remember everything. I remember getting tossed up into the air. I remember flipping. I think it was. I think it was only once, but it felt like I was just like getting tossed over and over again. And uh, and I landed 
back in the ditch, which I didn't know at the time, but I was carrying the, um, what's it called? The, the sword. I'm trying to remember what it is. The, the device to help, you know, that keeps them from being able to trigger them with like remote controls. The jammers. Um, jammers. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and you know, those aren't, those aren't really light. It was like 30, 40 pounds. And I remember when that came down, that slammed in the back of my head, like caught right in between my flak and my helmet. Um, and like, yeah, it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel too hot. And it actually kind of rocked, rocked my brain a little bit, a little bit more than it had already been. And, uh, I got like a little bit of a temporary amnesia. I, I didn't even know what was going on around me. Um, but you know, it, it, once, once everything kind of, kind of came back, I was like, okay, I just stepped on a bomb. I need to, I need to get out of here. Like I need to, I need to check myself. It's it's amazing uh, to me how some people can recall because we've talked to dozens of people who have have been in IED explosions and some people can recall what happens with incredible accuracy and others it's just uh, the bomb went off and next thing I know I woke up and I was in a hospital or I was in Landstuhl or I was on a plane or wherever and, and so you you remember everything um, when you recognize that you just stepped on a bomb and you landed and the dust settles and your ears stop ringing for a split second and you said, okay, I just stepped on a bomb, what what are you doing next? So the very next thing that I did after I, I realized that was I, I, I could feel that I was like half in the crater and half not. So the first thing I did was I got myself out. And I remember looking up at the sky. And I remember looking up at all the stars. And taking in that first real deep breath and tasting all the dirt and all the blood. And I remember thinking, okay, good. So I can breathe fine, which means that my breathing's not compromised. My, you know, um, and at the time it felt like my legs were still there. Like I couldn't move them, but it, have you ever like, have you ever been in an accident or something, but you didn't realize that you had gotten hurt. And then when you like look down at the cut or look down and see yourself bleeding, that yep. then it like starts hurting. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. It was like they were there. And then when I looked down and realized they weren't there, then the pain hit. And I remember my, my first reaction, you know, people expect you to like scream and, and, you know, typical movie Hollywood stuff. But everybody that I talked to, and even for me, it was like, I looked down, I was just like, well, shit, you know, like, this is my life now. Uh, and when one of my, one of my best friends came up there and he, you know, he was helping me out. I was like, dude, I'm so pissed because I'm not going to be able to ride my bike when I got back or when I get back. Um, you know, just trying to, trying to keep the humor in it with all the adrenaline and everything. But, um, you're leaving out one very important detail of this story because I've learned this through this podcast. When people get blown up, the first thing all males wonder is about. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't even. <laughs> yes, you're right. I am leaving out that detail. And yeah, I mean, my legs hurt, but my junk felt like it got kicked by a horse several times over. Like I couldn't, I I couldn't even touch it. Did did, did you physically um, try and look to make sure everything was intact down there first? I I was just hoping by God's good graces that everything was intact. It was it was painful. I couldn't even 
I couldn't even like touch it, let alone try to like pull everything off. <laughs> and luckily, I was wearing those blast diapers. Um, oh, you wore those? Those, those compress- Yeah, yeah. We we actually not two days before that had gotten a brand new set. Wow, the set that we had. Yeah, I See, mean, the army have been better. The army gave us this sort of, you know, that soft like flak vest that went around your groin area. Um, yeah. And, and nobody ever wore it because it, it, it just looked ridiculous. And no one ever really felt like this thing was going to protect my man parts from anything. Like literally. Well, <laughs> I, I, if, if there's one thing people can learn from this podcast, I hope it's to wear your diaper because <laughs> it saves you money. All right. So everything is intact other than your legs at this point in time. But so when the pain yeah. sets in, what's going through your mind? Well, the first thing that goes through my mind is I need to stop the bleeding. So, I mean, I'm still out of it. I'm, you know, adrenaline's kicking and everything. I'm trying to get the, the tourniquet out of my shoulder pa- or my shoulder pocket. Uh, and after my explosion, it had actually knocked out um, our squad leader and had blasted the pack, one of the packs off the corpsman's, our doc's pack with the pain meds in it. So, oh, wow. Um, so when he when he got to me, you know he's like, "Hey man, I don't have anything to give you. You're just gonna have to tough, you know, uh, toughen this out." And uh, well, you know, luckily the adrenaline's still going, so I had a little bit of pain tolerance there. But um, I just remember like, like I do, <laughs> I do not want to do this right now. Uh, I, I can only but, imagine how emotionally deflating that must have been. It, it was a little bit of, yeah, it was a little bit deflating, um, but that didn't change the fact that I still needed to say, you know, I still needed to stop the bleeding. So with the help, actually, I mean, the corpsman, my corpsman Crowley, he was, he was on top of it. He, uh, he was able to get five tourniquets on me in a matter of like a minute and a half. Wow. And it, I mean, that's what it felt like to me. He was, he was on it. Did, did, um, did you know what what part of your legs were missing? Like, where was it above the knee, below the knee? Where was it? At the time, I thought that both of my legs were blown just above the ankle. Oh, really? And okay. Yeah. And so I and I, I again because it was night, I couldn't get a really good look at them. But you know, with all the blood everywhere, it it, it kind of had just looked at like it was just below the ankle, like I was going to be fine. It wasn't until I got to the hospital and realized that it was at least higher on my, my left side, uh, much higher on my left side that um, I knew any different. But, um, yeah, so back to that night when, when everything, when the quote-unquote dust had settled, um, I remember looking over and uh, I saw my squad leader. And like I said, he got, he was, decently close by when, when it went off and he was still calling in the Kazivac, calling in the nine line over the ID that I just stepped on. And I remember looking over it. He had, he had taken a good hit to his face. Um, but he was, he was still calling it in. I mean, talk about a, a more of a badass guy at the time. Um, and that's when I, I looked down because I like moved my hand and I, I touched TJ. Um, and I'm not going to go into, into too much detail about this, but uh, uh, 
I could tell that he was in a bad spot. Um, and that he, he, he probably wasn't going to make it. But was he alive at that moment? Do you know, or you just, you didn't know? Um, barely. We, he had a small pulse, but I mean, it's just one of those things when you know, you know. Was he able to speak? Did you try to speak to him? His, uh, no, his, uh, his face wasn't, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, he wasn't able to speak. Um, what happened to the guy who was injured that you were getting the litter for? Was he nearby as well? He, he was actually nearby. Um, these, these IDs were not even two feet apart. Oh, wow. They were that close to each other. Uh, well, I mean, the craters, the craters, at least, they were touching each other. Okay. And we found out, we found out, well, at least the rest of my squad found out a few days later that there was actually another IED just below him. And so if it had anybody had stepped on that side of him, it would have set another one off. Oh, my God. And, you know, and, they, and, and that's one of the things they tell you, you know, if there's one, there's two, if there's two, there's 20. Um, but, you know, we had scanned these areas, and, I mean, at, at this point in time, they're so good at making IEDs that you don't know when your detector's going off, you don't know if it's just gum in the, you know, a tin, like a little bit of tin in the ground or if it's an IED. Um, and so we, we thought it was clear. And, again, we had never been out there during the day, so we didn't, we didn't know, we didn't see visually what we needed to look out for. Um, so take me back real quick, real quick, Chris. Um, so the tourniquets are on, um, uh-huh. and your, your best friend TJ is in bad shape and you have no morphine emotionally. Are you starting to lose it at this point? Are you still holding it together? Where are you mentally? I, I like to think that I was still holding it together. I'm, I'm one of those guys that when I'm in a lot of pain, I try to, I try to be comedic about it. Um, so I was like trying to tell people jokes. Like I said, when, when one of my buddies came over and he was, he was helping me out, I was like, dude, I'm pissed. It's like, all I wanted, all I wanted to do was ride my bike when I get back. Uh, and, uh, but you know, they got us out of the kill zone. They got us to the, the, um, CCP, the casual collection area. Uh, and we were waiting on the helo and I, the one time that I think I was starting to lose it maybe a little bit was waiting for the helo to come in. Cause you could hear it in the distance, but it seemed like it wasn't coming any closer for a little while. And I remember I was, you know, starting to get, get tired. And one of my, one of my buddies who was next to me, I remember I had to grab onto his hand. And I would just, I started squeezing it. Like I would squeeze it every now and again, any time that I felt like I was falling asleep so that I, it would keep me awake. Um, and I just like for what felt like an hour and it wasn't that long, of course, but what felt like an eternity just seemed like this helicopter wasn't coming. And when it finally landed, um, when it finally landed, it was, it was a liberating feeling. Um, at least, you know, knowing that I was at least on my way, hopefully to get, to get taken care of. So they get you out of there. 
Um, at some point in time, you're put to sleep, obviously, uh, and you wake up and, and kind of where are you when you wake up and, and what's the time frame like and who's around you? So, yeah, actually, they, yeah, they did put me, I remember when they got me into the helo, you know, they cut off all my clothes. Uh, and actually, and this might be a little too vulgar, but at the time, um, at, part of my leg was actually still attached on my right side. Um, and was there talk of I saving it? My, no, no, okay. it was too far gone for that. Okay. Um, but I remember my buddy had to, had to kind of carry it. So it wasn't just like dangling. Yeah. Um, and I remember looking back on his face and, uh, I couldn't imagine what was going through his mind, but they, you know, they finally got us to the helo and they took off all my clothes and everything. And, and they gave me the little morphine pop. And I mean, I tell you what, I had the weirdest trip ever. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember at all. I do remember at one point in time, I felt like I was like, like a human pyramid and not like a, like a cheerleader pyramid, but like a, the pyramid of Giza of human <laughs> bodies. And we were all painted gold and talking to each other. And, you know, I remember they took, when they landed the helo, they, they took the pop out of my mouth uh, so that they could ask me some questions. And when they put it back in, I was headed into the, the tent. And I remember all the doctors and the nurses, they were standing there. And then all of a sudden the bodies just like used into the table. And they were just like these, these like cyborgs on top of this table, just um, working on me. Um, and then that's when I knocked out. And when I woke back up, uh, I was in um, Baza. Okay. And and um, I remember, you know, I I had just woken up. I looked over and I saw my buddy who had stepped on the first one. He was still he was still unconscious. Um, and five minutes later, this nurse walked in and she's like, Oh, Hey, you know, let's see that you're awake. And, and I asked her, I was like, Hey, um, how's everyone doing? Because that's the, that's the first thing that's on your mind is you want to make sure that all your other boys are okay. And, um, she's like, you know, she said, um, rather the guy who stepped on the first one, he was, he was recovering nicely. My squad leader, he, you know, got pretty banged up, but he's going to be fine. The one who was calling and in the medevac when his face was yeah, messed the one up? That was calling okay. him, yeah, the one that was calling in the medevac. And, I was, and before she said anything, I was like, you know, what about, what about TJ? And, uh, yeah, she, I mean, she didn't say anything. And that's, yeah, that's when I knew that, that he was, he was dead. Uh, and uh, I, I asked her, I was like, is, is there a way that I can, I can call my mom? Because I know she's freaking out. You know how it is with, with the military and everything. Right? Yeah. She was under the impression that they only called you if your child was killed. And uh, so when she got the call, she immediately broke down. And it was actually my, my dad who had to like say, hey, he's still, still alive. But when I when I called her, you know, she's, just being a, a typical mom about it, like, oh, I'm so glad you're safe. I'm so glad you're safe. But mom, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. I'm coming home. I'm just coming home a little bit shorter. <laughs> what did she respond with? <laughs> and she started laughing, and she said that that's when she knew that I was going to be okay. Um, 
And I, I just talked to her. I was like, hey, you know, I don't know when I'll be home. They're saying that we're, they're going to try to get me to San Diego as soon as they can. Uh, but just know I am coming home. And uh, I just know that that was good for her. And it was good for me, too, being able to let her know that I was going to be okay. When did you first speak to someone else in your squad or your unit about TJ? Um, after after my squad leader had come came in, he came in probably about forty minutes later. Um, and you know, I just I asked him how he was doing. Uh, obviously, I could see that he was pretty banged up, but he was he was in good spirits. Um, and I asked him if he knew about TJ, and he's just like, yeah, like. And kind of just told me what he knew, um, and we didn't really we didn't really talk about it much more until we got to San Diego. But uh, yeah, Chris, when, when when did that that emotionally hit you? Because I, I mean, I, I just I can hear it in your voice now that you know, obviously it's a tough subject, and please, you know, I, I understand it's not easy to to share these things again, but. At some point in time, it, it had to hit you because it hits all of us, right? When you lose somebody that close to you, not only in the military, but just somebody you consider a friend, it hits us all, and, and it hits you in the worst spots. And I'm just curious when that, that moment came for you. That's actually a, a great question, Mark, because a, a lot of people think it's immediately after, after everything goes down. And at least for me, it wasn't because I was not only was I incredibly drugged up, um, but I was just, I was still taking everything in, you know, I was still processing what had happened and it wasn't actually until about three or four months after my injury that I had really kind of realized how different my life was and, and everything that had happened. Uh, and the biggest thing for me was, uh, dealing with, with TJ's death because, for a very long time, and even even today, I feel this sense of guilt for his death because it was the idea that I stepped on that, that ended up taking his life. And that was a hard thing for me to grasp uh, for a long, long time. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, the guilt guilt is a word that we, we use a lot here on the podcast. It's There's a lot of it. And, and uh, well, I, I can't sympathize. I certainly empathize. Um, not only through people I've talked to, but through my own personal experience. And it's, uh, you know, that, that, that can consume you. And, and that's why there's PTSD. And that's why we have 22 soldiers a day killing themselves and things of that nature. And, and the fact that you're still here and you're living the life that you are is, is probably a testament to, to TJ and the rest of the guys in your unit more than anything else. And, and I think that's what we always tell people to hang on to, you know, I mean, it's to, to keep on living and not let, that guilt or, or the feeling that you did something wrong and it took somebody else's life consume you. And, and, and obviously it hasn't, but, um, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of layers beneath all that. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, you know, looking back now, it was, it was difficult to cope with. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad at where I'm at now and that I was able to kind of work my way out of those, those, bad thoughts and those issues that I was having back then. Was there a moment that you knew that you knew it wasn't your fault, that it's just kind of, well, it's war and crap happens and everything else? 
Um, no, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a moment where I've ever felt like it, it wasn't my fault. Um, but I've learned to accept the fact that he's gone and no amount of wishing he wasn't and wishing things were different is going to change that. And if there was a, a life changing moment, it was when I finally realized that if he was here, if he was able to talk to me right now, he would, he would be pissed at the fact that I was feeling sorry about myself. Uh, and that instead of wasting this, basically the second chance that I had got to live, uh, that I needed to be taking advantage of taking advantage of it. Cause I mean, especially going through that, you realize just how fragile life, you know, our lives are, um, and that they can be taken away from you at any second. And, you know, while you still have it, you need to be making the best of it. Well, you certainly have, have, heeded those words and, and made the best of the, the second chance you were given, given everything else that has happened to you uh, post your military career. I don't want to fast forward too far ahead, but kind of just take me through, you know, how you end up getting back to San Diego. Obviously you get discharged from the Marine Corps and kind of the time frame of all this, how quickly does this happen and, and, and your recovery? Yeah. So the recovery, the recovery process was, uh, Pretty straightforward. Uh, we got surprisingly, we were able to get from you know Afghanistan to San Diego in about a, in, a, in a little under a week, which is really fast. Normally they don't, but uh, they made a special exception for us. Um, and so I was able to get to San Diego uh, within a week. You know, see my family, see a couple of buddy of mine who weren't able to deploy. Um, and I was out of the hospital and into recovery or into rehab and physical therapy after about, after about a month. Um, and you know, the, the physical, the physical therapy and everything that actually went really well. My goal was I wanted to be up and walking again by the time that my unit got back in October. Um, and I was, I was able to accomplish that. Um, I was wow. able to, to walk on my prosthetics. Um, yeah, I was using the cane at the time, but you know, in, what is that? In four months, I think that's right. Less pretty, than that, three months. Good, uh, all right, three months. Yeah, I think I mean, because by the time you got good. back, it was July. You know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, I wanted to be there, and I knew not only would it, you know, be good for all those guys to see, but you know, I, it'd be motivating. It was motivating for me to see you know, these guys. My brothers come back and um, be able to see them and talk to them and everything like that. And from there, from there on out, you know, my goal was to get out of the hospital. And I got out of the hospital after about a year, a little under a year of, of physical therapy. And, um, actually, that's kind of where the real the real struggle began because um, I didn't have a purpose anymore. So I was just kind of in limbo, not knowing what to do with myself. We, we, again, another discussion that comes up a lot. It, there's two wars, right? There's the one that you fight, and then there's the aftermath. There's the second war you fight, and sometimes the second war is harder to fight than the first one. Um, and, yeah. and, and that second war, again, it was what people succumb to. Uh, there's all that. Let me ask you, how quickly do you get reunited with Harley, your dog? 
Oh man, uh, I was able to through some very lucky people. I was able to get back with her, or she was able to come back to me within six months. Within six months of can't remember the exact time, but within six months of me being injured, um, and it, I mean that she it was detrimental in my recovery and and just keeping me my head above water for a long time. I was going to say, I mean, how much did she help you in your recovery? I mean, do do you think if you didn't have her, you'd still be struggling with a lot of things? I think I would have. I think I would have taken a lot of, of darker turns. Um, she was a responsibility to me, and and not in the negative sense, but you know, it. I had this this creature, this beautiful creature who was relying on me to be there for her, and. Uh, you know, I didn't want to let her down, and even at the darkest of times, I would just look over, and she would know. She would know that I was hurting, and she would be there, right next to me, being there for me, just sitting there. It's 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 amazing. I mean, uh, the the healing power. Uh, again, I, all dog owners obviously can relate, but you know, the fact that uh, you know the dog and Harley was able to help increase your quality of life, I think is, is super special. And, um, you know, that, that it's aided in, in you getting to where you are today. Uh, it, it speaks volumes to the relationship that you, you fostered with her, not only in combat, but out of combat. So you get out of the hospital, uh, and when do you start, you know, modeling and getting on TV? How does this come about? <laughs> uh, well, there was a lot of, there's a lot of downs before that became those ups. Um, like I was saying before, after I got out of the hospital, I didn't have a I didn't have a purpose. There wasn't anything I was working towards anymore, and so I floated there for a long time. And it was coming up on the one year anniversary of everything, and and the nightmares were coming back, and that guilt had come back twofold. And um, I had recently just ended a fairly serious relationship, um, and so all these things kind of just just really sucked me down to a dark level um and i was i was really depressed for quite a few months almost a year um and i got into working out i was just trying to find anything just anything that would preoccupy my time and just keep myself from thinking about everything uh and yeah so i started going to the gym working out eventually it started helping me mentally um and finally well not finally but eventually one day i was i was finishing up a workout and this this older lady came in uh, and we didn't say anything to each other you know i was getting ready to leave uh she was you know on the elliptical and i didn't think anything of it went about my day and a friend of mine sent me a message on facebook with a screenshot saying, Hey, I think my, my friend John is talking about you. And sure enough, it was the same lady, uh, same lady at the gym. And she's like, you know, I'm sitting here I'm at the gym. I've had a bad day. Um, and I look over and I see this, this amputee veteran and, you know, couldn't be more than at the time, you know, at the time I was 21, but or, well, I guess I was 22 at the time. Um, and, you know, she's like, couldn't be more than 23, 24. And he's out here working out, and it just made me realize that maybe my day wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Uh, and that was 
that was my iconic light bulb. That was, uh, you know, I have this gift that I'm wasting. I have this potential to motivate people and I need to do something with it. And so that, that's where my, my drive towards finding something greater began. Well, and the other gift, I guess, is being dashingly good-looking and looking good in men's underwear. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> I, before, before any of that, man, I tell you what, I never thought I could take a good picture to save my life. If you would have asked me high school and the Marine Corps if I would ever be doing any of this stuff, I would have called you crazy. Well, I'm, so how does the whole thing come about then? Well... I started looking for ways that I could share my story. I started looking for ways that I could motivate other people. Um, and, you know, I was really into fitness at the time. So I thought, you know, I could get into the whole fitness scene. Um, but then an opportunity to, to model came about. Uh, this guy was looking for injured veterans and I wanted to be one of the, one of the, the models. And so I contacted the photographer. He set something up uh, when I would be back out in California. Cause I, I moved back to the Midwest with my folks for a little bit. And then I just, it was too toxic of a place. So I moved back to San Diego. Um, and I uh, linked up with this photographer and we shot and it, it became a really big hit. Um, and then I started using that to do public speaking more fitness stuff, more modeling. Um, and then that's when I was able to get in touch with Jockey uh, and then do, um, do the Show Him What's Underneath campaign uh, last year. Well, I guess two years now, technically. Um, uh, and then on to General Hospital. Yeah, so you're, you, you were Chet Driscoll on the soap opera General Hospital. Was this like a big speaking party? Or were you just standing there looking handsome? It was actually a fairly big speaking party. They they eased me into it the first couple of days. Um, you know, not surprisingly, I play a, an injured veteran. Uh, but you know, he's he's a guy that's going through something that's familiar with a lot of veterans, and that's an addiction to to drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. um, suffering with PTSD and his injuries. Um, and so, yeah, the first couple of days they eased me into it and, you know, from what it sounds like, I'll be back on here shortly. I have a surgery coming up, so I'm going to have to take some time off of that. Um, but you know, when I get back into it, I want to do some really good things with, with Chet, uh, and just raise some awareness for veterans. Uh, That's amazing. Um, let me ask you. In doing all this kind of stuff that's so cool, because like, you know, all the injured veterans, they're always giving back, right? Like even me, I'm not like an injured, injured veteran, but you know, my goal is the same as yours. Let's, let's give back. Let's help out other vets. When you come around other soap opera TV stars and you're around other models and everything else, do you find that they treat you differently because you're an injured vet? I mean, do you feel like they look at you differently? I do. Uh, is that, not in a bad way. I was, was going to say, is that a bad way or a good way? No, I, I think my, the one thing is I don't want anyone to think that I'm only doing this, you know, for the fame or whatever. 
you know, and I'm not trying to use my injury to, to, you know, to my advantage and, and do anything like that. But I have been given this opportunity um, and I want people to, to see the skill behind it. Um, and I want to be able to use what, whatever attention that comes my way, I want to use it to, again, raise awareness. You know, I want to give back, um, whether it's, again, by raising awareness or by giving to charities and working with charities. Um, that's the ultimate goal. When you look back on all the experience together, I mean, look, you wouldn't be doing these stuff, this stuff if you didn't have your situation. Is it as simple to say that you'd trade it all to have both your legs back? I would trade it all to have TJ back. But when it comes to having my legs, um, I'm grateful for what I've been giving. Yeah, you know, there are definitely days where I'm, I wish I could just walk up a flight of stairs without feeling like I hiked up a mountain <laughs> um, or to go up a hill without worrying about, you know, falling back and, and biffing it. But, you know, I, I've met some awesome people and I've been able to do some awesome things. You know, I met my wife. Um, I probably would have never met my wife had it not been for my injury. Um, I, I would probably be a very angry person still because I was a very angry person when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, and I was a guy that took advantage of, of life. And I would have never changed my ways had I not been given a reason to. How did you end up meeting your wife, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, so she actually, uh, I do some work with some charities in St. Louis. Um, and one year they were throwing a gala uh, and I was going to it. So I, I went home in one of the gyms close to my, my parents' house that I work out at. She was a, a personal trainer there. Um, and we, we got to talk. She actually approached me, which I found incredibly attractive. <laughs> um, and like a girl that knows what she wants. Uh, and so we just started talking and, um, you know, we did the long distance thing for a while, but I was never worried because you know, when you, when you trust someone and you know, someone, you don't have anything to be worried about. And, you know, I told her, I was like, Hey, I'm, I can't, I can't move back to the Midwest, but if you see yourself coming out to San Diego, then let's do this thing. And eventually she moved out here and we, uh, we ended up getting married and it's been, it's been an awesome time together. Chris, for the record, you make it very easy on women to know what they want when you're an underwear model and a soap opera star. Just for the record, I'd like to put that out there. It doesn't make it very difficult on them, but no, congratulations. In all seriousness, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, brother, I mean, you know, it's great that we're ending this on a high note, uh, and I don't want to go backwards, but obviously, you know, the pain is still there for you uh, as it pertains to TJ and, and things that you're still struggling with. And you know, I hope you find the peace that you need if you haven't found it already. Uh, I know it's never going to be 100% peaceful again because of the situation. But what you've accomplished after that and what you've done is a testament to what veterans are all about and why this podcast exists because of guys like you who have a story to tell. And, you know, th this podcast helps keep guys like TJ in our memories and in our hearts. And, and it's why we're still doing what we're doing. And, and I just thank you for being so candid and sharing all of your story and being willing to tell us that. And I wish you nothing but the best brother. I mean, just continued success and you know, maybe I'll buy some of your underwear. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been a, an honor. And if I can just leave off saying one more thing, sure. Um, you know, it's, 
for a lot of these guys who are suffering, you kind of think that it's the end of the world. Um, you know, find, you got to find your purpose because ultimately that it comes down to, because it, it, it never gets easier, but you do get used to the burden. Um, and, you know, yeah, having my link sucks, but it's a reminder that I'm still here and that I still have something to give. And I, I think that's, you don't have to lose your legs to, to motivate someone. You know, people look up to veterans and, and what we have done. And I want, I want especially any veteran listening to this to realize that, you know, it's not, you don't have to determine your life by, by the past. You can make something of your future. Perfectly said, brother. Chris Van Etten, thank you so much for being part of The Hazard Ground. Hey, thank you. You've been listening to The Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.